0: Greetings, and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. We get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture. Got another great one for you today. Ed Ebert is my guest. He is the Senior Director of Grain Production and Utilization. As he says, put simply, that means supply and demand with the Indiana Corn Marketing Council and the Indiana Soybean Alliance. Those are your checkoff dollars. He's got a long history. He's an Ohio State graduate, ag guy of of course, worked for Central Soya, Cargill, ConAgra, Bungie, and basically every other huge, huge name in grain in uh, North America. Ed Ebert is going to talk to us today about all sorts of things as it relates to what the checkoff program does, the challenges for corn and soy, the future of corn and soy, and the current situation that we're dealing with right now. Ed Ebert, welcome to the business of agriculture. Well, thanks for having me, Damian. Well, you were supposed to be recording with this, this with me last week, but you were on a trip and then you got a, a little problem. Was it a business trip? Because I can relate to business travel problems. Were you on a business trip that got in late?
1: Yeah, it was one of those things where, you get to Fargo, North Dakota, and it's hard to get there and it's even harder to get back from there. Uh, my friends
0: actually make points. They, they, they sit around and drink a beer and they laugh about the fact that they said, how many times have you worked in uh, Manhattan, meaning the Big Apple? I said, oh, right. like three times. How many times in Chicago? I said, oh, you know, dozen times. I say, how many times between Fargo and Sioux Falls? I said, oh God, dozens and dozens of times. I'm going to <laughs> those places. So where you are traveling to and fro is uh, my stomping ground because when you do ag, you do a lot of the Dakotas. Um, Senior Director of Grain Production Utilization with Indiana Corn Marketing Council and Indiana Soybean Alliance. You guys are putting on the Indiana Ag Policy Summit uh, next week, which is one of the reasons I want to get you on here, because I'm the closing speaker. gonna have all kinds of discussions about trade, legislation, regulation, et cetera, and I'm the closer on that. By the way, if you're listening to this and you are a Midwestern person, you can attend the Indiana Ag Policy Summit on Tuesday, that's Tuesday, July 30th, uh, from 9 to 3 free admission at the Indianapolis Colts training facility. So you can go on, uh, you can go and find that on the Indiana corn marketing or Indiana soybean Alliance website. You can find the link to that. And tell me about your job. Tell me what you, tell me what you do and tell me about those two organizations.
1: Well, you know, my background, you know, having been in the ag industry since 1985 has revolved a lot around, um, sales marketing, uh, later on, uh, commercial management, um, Proprietary trading and providing economic analysis and data to those traders that were in that realm uh, at a very large multinational company, so kind of done the whole gamut of starting out in sales, working my way up through management, and then ultimately um, achieving peak performance out in st louis so um Yeah, so it kind of sets me up here for this job that we do here at the Corn Marketing Council and the Soybean Alliance because the area that I work in, again, the fancy way of saying supply and demand, I work with grain marketing, uh, livestock. Uh, production and environment, biofuels, and new uses both corn and soybeans. So kind of, kind of fit its way very well into my skill set that I'd had uh, working on in commercial industry. You so said that within both those grains,
0: corn and soybean, and by the way, dear listener, here in Indiana, where I own my farms and live half the year and where Ed works, we are the number five corn producing state in the union, and we're the number four soybean producing state in the union. So corn and soybeans are pretty important for Indiana. We're no Illinois or Iowa, but also we're about half the size of those two states. So we do pretty well for ourselves here in Indiana. You said that those two crops, of course, go to <clears throat> five different things. Is what you're you're looking at? You're looking at feed.
1: I heard biofuel. Uh, give me the other three again. Uh, grain marketing, which is you know mostly mostly uh, exports and and trade trading type or trade activity. Mm-hmm. And then new uses, which is, uh, again, trying to identify new uh, purposes for corn and soybeans or their products. Okay. And so you look at those. Is there another one we missed? Feed, Uh, Bob? Yeah, production environment is basically about stewardship, uh, nutrient management, and water quality. All right. So you you
0: kind of took this as your retirement job. You're in your early sixties. You've worked for all these huge names. You started out selling feed for Cargill and then it's Central Soya, Cargill, Conagra, Bungie, et cetera. And so there you are, and, and they give you a task and they say, All right, we want to move more grain, because who doesn't want to sell more grain? Is that kind of how it happens? They came to you and said, Ed, help us move more grain.
1: Well, and and the quick answer is yeah, that's uh, exactly what they said. And they rely a lot on my former commercial experience and contacts that I've had in the industry over you know, a fairly extensive career. So yeah, it, it's been, it's played into a lot of the skill sets that I have for sure. Okay. So
0: there you sit and you're supposed to help them move more grain and oversee this stuff. Uh, but grain, grain consumption pretty much just does what it does. Why, why have you no, I'm not being mean. I'm just asking, why have you? Grain consumption does what it does. The, the cows That's are going to eat, and the marketplace says, uh, we need more chickens. So, when we need more chickens, we chicken up, and then we feed the heck out of the chickens. So, what do you do that wouldn't happen if it weren't for you?
1: Well, I think, um, in seeing how we're on chickens, let's talk about livestock, just for an example, because it's a great example of the work that we do here. in, in in Indiana, one of the issues or components of what we do is uh, designed to increase livestock numbers inside of our state. So it increases demand for both soybeans for the protein, the soybean meal for the animals, and also from the corn side for the consumption uh, of the feed. So, you know, part of that that work that we do here is is to make sure that in in terms of expansion of current livestock operations, that we are expanding in a very um, um, responsible way in terms of citing these, these new facilities and where they're put uh, and also the, the work that revolves around uh, also letting additional stakeholders in the community know that you know, increasing livestock production is a win for our entire state uh, from both the corn and soybean side, but also other associated industries here in our state. And so it's, it's a really complex program, um, and we've titled you know, a series called The Ag Effect, which is, you know, agriculture is very broad across the state. It's, it's the leading industry in our state, but it's very broad. It's spread out literally across the entire geography of our state. Mm-hmm. So it's very thin if, you're just, if you happen to live next to a farm. You just see that fellow, or you see the fields that you drive by on your way to and from work. right. When you aggregate all that, um, it's, a ma- it's a very, very large industry here in our state and very important to our state's economy. So that's part of the message that we try to get out when it comes to uh, expansion of livestock here in our state, which is it's not just about feeding you know a few more bushels of corn or a few more tons of soybean meal. It's also about that whole impact that that farm and that business activity and enterprise is having across the entire state of Indiana. Okay. So,
0: it's really an outreach thing. And yeah, we want to get more livestock in our state because that's good for the industry, it's good for spin-off jobs, processing, etc., and also it burns through some of our grain. Of course, other states are doing this also. And you work within, uh, as Indiana Corn and Soy, you work within the National Checkoff Program. Would you explain to the listeners how these things work?
1: Sure. And, and when you look at, uh, for example, we'll start with the soybean side because it's a little bit more clear. Um, the spark, which is a soybean, soybean promotional and research checkoff program started, you know, over you know, two decades ago and, uh, that has a national component to it. It's a United soybean board, which is our national organization. Uh, and then qualified state soybean boards like Indiana soybean Alliance is a qualified state soybean board, um, you know, We basically, when you look at the collections that come in from uh, selling uh, grain or soybeans at a processing plant or terminal elevator or your local elevator, um, those proceeds are split 50% to the United Soybean Board, which is the national group, and 50% stay here within our state for programming here in the state of Indiana. So if I sell a bushel of soybeans, then there's a little bit of a, 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 how much is taken out? The best way to think about it is, is for every $1,000, it's $0.50, so it's $0.50 per every $1,000. Proceeds that uh, you get when you sell your beans at your first purchaser, or half of 1% of sales price.
0: Okay. So those dollars then are all to be spent on research and promotion, but they cannot be spent on lobbying. That's one of the big things with the 27 different checkoff programs. You can use it to research new ways to utilize soybeans. You can utilize it to promote soybeans, fly to uh, Vietnam and help, uh, you know, foster a relationship so that they'll buy more soybeans. But the one thing you can't do is go to Capitol Hill and lobby for legislation on biofuel.
1: That is exactly correct.
0: Okay. So that's who pays you. And then between the state and the federal, how's the split then work? You said 50% here, 50% there.
1: That's correct. Uh, and, and, what's interesting about how that works is, is, you know, there are many national programs uh, that reinvest some of that money that is sent to the national org- organization back into the States or into multi-state programs. So it really is, uh, I think a very, um, effective allocation of how that money is, is spent and identified by different farmer boards at both levels because the United Soybean Board has a very large farmer board. Uh, don't ask me how many it is because it's a room full of them. Uh, here at the Indiana Soybean Alliance, it's 24 farmer directors that you know take a look at you know how we spend that money and the focus uh, that they want the staff here at the Indiana Soybean Alliance to, to focus on where that money goes. Okay, so tell me
0: a tell me a success story. Tell me something you've done that uh, you're excited about. What's what's Indiana soybean or the U.S. Soybean Alliance? What's 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 going what's going well?
1: You know, I, I think um, when you look at you know the success stories we've had, um, it goes well back into time from the point that checkoff was uh, first originated, trying to educate and promote and um, develop new uses and and promote industries that are affiliated with consumption of our products is good for the whole ag industry. It's not just good for soybean farmers and it's not just good for corn farmers who right. tend to be the same person. Um, it's expanding outreaches into trade. Um, and you, you mentioned the fact you're know, going to Vietnam or whether it's going to China or other, it's it's that kind of thing that, that really Connects you to these marketplaces. And it's kind of interesting. We had a Japanese uh, trade team in here from the United Soybean Export Council just here Monday and Tuesday. In fact, I uh, said goodbye to them uh, last evening after our dinner. And, um, you know, Japan is a great customer of the United States in terms of agricultural products. And certainly when we look at um, You know, those kinds of success stories, building those personal relationships with those people, I think is critically important, especially in an industry where, you know, you don't differentiate a lot because a commodity is, is a commodity. It's developing that relationship and that trust with each other. That I think really makes the difference. Sure. So they're not
0: necessarily buying Indiana soybeans; they're buying soybeans from the United States. It doesn't—they don't—they don't say they come from Indiana.
1: That's correct. I mean, you know, identity preservation to that level on just you know uh, beans that are going to be crushed for protein or oil—it's very expensive and difficult process. But however, you know, the Japanese are a great example of this they are buying a lot of organic and specialty soybeans from Indiana specifically, and a lot of that business, you know, takes place in containerized shipments or smaller vessel sizes. So, we actually do have, um, you know, a great story to tell there, uh, particularly with you know a Japanese market that's highly specialized in that regard.
0: All right. So the the since we're on the discussion of Japan, uh, the elephant in the room. Everybody loves to talk about China, and I got in trouble with some of my ag people because. Uh, over the last year and a half, I have explained that the, the trade dispute with China did not invent $8 soybeans. The world having too many soybeans invented $8 soybeans. I'm an ag economist. I think you certainly <laughs> seem to be familiar with this. Okay. So, uh, when they said, well, well China's not buying them. I said, well, do you think China's just not eating? Of course, they're still buying soybeans off the global market, so presumably, wherever those soybeans are being bought from, those former customers would then have a demand, which means we would fill them, meaning it's, it's not as though uh, China just stopped eating. Uh, your take on it. Okay, we know trade is good. We know trade fights are bad for agriculture. We know that we are a, an exporting country of agricultural products. We get all that, but the world has a lot of soybeans.
1: You know, balance sheets don't lie, and globally, uh, you're you're correct. Um, when you know China reacted with those tariffs uh, last July 6th, when we put on uh, tariffs to their industrial goods, they say they specifically targeted soybeans for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but certainly, the fact that they're part of Trump's base is part of that for sure. And um, so. You know, the The people that have lost in this whole tariff trade dispute is pretty simple. It's you, the U.S. farmer has lost, um, the Chinese consumer has lost, and the Brazilian farmer has been the net beneficiary of all this. This dispute, for sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. So here's the thing: we we can talk about. We certainly know why they did it. Uh, also, when there's a, a lot of soybeans on the global market, in other words, I can play tough and say I don't need something when there's already tons of it. And I can get it from somewhere else, and that's yep. why. Again, some of my ag people have disagreed with me, and they say, "Yeah, but you know, we're not selling these beans because I said the, the eight dollar soybeans happened because there's a glut of them on the global market, and we're." Even if we open up things with trade tomorrow, I said if we start if things get straightened out with trade with China tomorrow, do you think that soybeans are going to go to ten fifty? Well, that would not be reasonable because there's still a lot of them. So, what's your prediction?
1: Well, I think you know that's you know that's classic supply and demand. I mean, would there be a uh, would there be a beneficial bounce to soybean price? Yeah. Do we get back to ten fifty? I I don't think so. I, mean, I don't think so either. Um, because again. Um, yeah, there's there's a couple of things that are very disruptive to, to demand that's going on right now globally. Number one is globally, uh, the global economy is slowing down a little bit, so that means less people going into the middle class, upgrading diets, and all the rest of that. It's it's still growing, but it's 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 not growing as fast as it was 18 months ago. Number two, you've got African swine fever in China that is, depending upon whose guess you want to look at, is destroying. Global, you know, protein demand for the first time in you know several years now.
0: Right now, the numbers are we might have 20 percent of the Asian uh, of the Chinese hog herd already dead because of the disease, and some say almost maybe is uh, 40 percent of the hog population is dead in China. So dead hogs don't eat soybeans. That's bad for us.
1: That's very bad for us. And 20 percent of the Chinese hog herd is roughly equivalent to our entire production. Right. So that's that's a had, massive number.
0: It's a massive number. The United States of America produces one-fifth the amount of pigs that China does. Just put that in perspective. Half of the world's hogs are all in China. So we know that. Of course, they're not anymore because they're all dying <laughs> because of this. So that's very bad for soybeans. Do we make
1: yeah. it up or do we just adjust and, and grow less? Well, I think what ends up happening is, is 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 and it happens all the time in agricultural markets. and. You know, farmers don't like it. I don't like it. No one likes it, um, which is why what we're doing at the Indiana Soybean Alliance and also the Indiana Corn Marketing Council is reaching out to these other uh, markets that are available. That you know perhaps we haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the last you know eight or ten years, while China demand just grew off of the charts. It's starting to focus more on those opportunities like Europe and North North Africa, Mediterranean. Uh, countries outside of China in the uh, Pacific Rim nations. So, yeah, it, there, there's there been good news and bad news with this because once China put those tariffs on last August, virtually all of Brazil's production was going to China to meet that demand. Well, guess what? Those beans aren't available for Europe anymore. They're not available for Mideast North Africa anymore. They're not available for Vietnam. So that created opportunities for you know, United States soybean exports to get into markets that we hadn't been in in a while. So that's been the great story uh, in terms of how these, these relationships that we built with these other countries are so important uh, because, again, if you're going to get this just down to a commodity business, then it all, it all works on dollars and cents. There's no differentiation that they're going to pay a lot of attention to. We're working on that. Okay, in your opinion, do we
0: end up with uh, do we does our demand change, okay, whether or not we get things worked out with China, we're just gonna pretty much be about here. Is this the idea? We're gonna be at nine dollar and twenty-five cent soybeans now for the foreseeable future?
1: You know, I think if you look at charts and if you look at price action here lately, the market, you know, has had a little bit of a spike up in signal, particularly on the corn market side. Beans are a little bit different, you know, problem that we've got. Over a billion bushels of carry out that's burdensome uh, to our balance sheet here in the United States. And certainly something that I've been talking to our farmers about for, you know, ever since I've been here since August of 2015 is, is that, you know, at some point, the ability of the global farmer to respond to higher prices is more than outstripping the demand side of growth. Whether you're talking China or whether you're talking about the world at large. So what I'm trying to say is this, When you had beans in the teens and you had seven or eight dollar corn, people around the world will figure out how to participate in that because virtually everyone can make money. You have pointed out the terrible issue of
0: seven dollar corn actually was bad for us.
1: Oh, yeah, because now they learned how to grow it in, um, they learned how to grow it everywhere. But Ukraine was, you know, obviously a major uh, competitor that's emerged. And then they started learning how to, you know, grow corn right after they harvest the soybeans in Brazil, which is called sophrenia So, you know, when you look at, um, and there was always kind of, they're saying they can double crop down there. They do double crop down there. And that production has gone from, you know, 30 or 40 million tons a year to now safrinha production is, over, well, sophrenia and, in full-season corn in Brazil now is over 100 million tons. That's a massive increase. Yeah. So I get in trouble with my ag people because I also say,
0: Ed, that we are going to grow less corn. About 25 years ago, the United States of America grew two-thirds of the globe's corn. So Less than three decades ago, 20 to 25 years ago, we grew 65% of the globe's corn. Last year, we grew 35%. We've gone from two-thirds of the corn to one-third of the corn. I don't see that changing back the other way because as you just pointed out these other countries have learned how to produce crops
1: well and, and, the, and that's kind of like I said the the, the the understanding of most Americans is is like when you say well Ukraine's going to learn how to grow corn you think of the old failed Soviet system right where you know they're not going to have the equipment or the capital to do it. Uh, wrong. If you've ever been to Ukraine or Kazakhstan or any of those former Soviet republics, there are well-capitalized uh, entities that are there. Most of it's uh, merged money from Western Europe that has gone in there and, and they have equipment that rivals what we have here in the U.S. and in some cases is bigger and newer. And so when you get that kind of competitor in uh, with that kind of investment, they're going to figure it out. I mean, they'll figure out how to get the quality. They'll figure out how to get the genetics there. They'll get the machines there, and that is the true threat to uh, the United States farmer today, which is is this global competitive competitive nature of production that we have now. And 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 so the markets function when you get too much of something, whether it's soybeans, corn, oil, or whatever. Is fairly simple. It's going to go ahead and try to ration that supply with price, and try and drive down the price to where marginal producers will start getting out of that marketplace, and and that's kind of the battle that we're locked in. And that's why what we do here at the checkoff is so important because what we're trying to do is differentiate the market. We're trying to make the farmer you know better in terms of production and management of the environment. We're trying to figure out what uses are. We're trying to increase uh, livestock, in terms of a consumptive um, tool here and value-adding tool here in our country, and then, of course, with biofuel. Okay, here's a question for you,
0: Ed. Uh, Speaking speaking of all those things, all right, plant-based meat. Plant-based meat. It is a real thing. It is coming. Dunkin' Donuts this morning announced they're going to go nationwide with plant-based meat sausage uh, in, in their restaurants. So you have national food chains. Burger King has the Impossible Burger. Dunkin' Donuts is gonna have Beyond Meat sausage. This is a real thing. So when you talk about livestock, now we still know you and I are still gonna eat our, our cheeseburgers and you and I are gonna eat our bacon, etc. But there is a reality looming called plant-based meat. And plant-based meat does not eat corn and soybeans. It might be made partially with corn and soybeans, but it's not like a pig or a steer or a chicken. Right. What do you think?
1: Oh, I, I would, I would tend to agree with you there because you're right. Guys our age are going to you know, keep eating what we've always eaten because uh, that's what we've always eaten. Uh, but this younger generation is much more adaptable in terms of, of their, particularly on food choices. You know, they, they have what they call foodies or whatever they are now and all the rest of this stuff. You know, when I'm hungry, I just go eat. Uh, but they don't look at it that way. Uh, they look at it differently. And, you know, guys like us thinking it's just going to be this way because it's always been this way. Um, I would would tend to agree with you that that is a significant risk looming uh, for uh, production agriculture, not just here in the U.S., but everywhere. Sure.
0: Plant-based meat is still made out of something. But it's made out of uh, it's made, in other words it's still made out of something it's just not made out of uh, you know an animal so I guess some of our product goes in there but not as much of it so that's going to be a real risk what about biofuels I get in trouble with my ag crowds when I say ethanol is not going to be around in ten years because we're going to have battery operated cars we're going to have more efficient cars and more importantly there's enough oil you know the united states is now the number one supplier and producer of oil in the world that's not saudi arabia anymore it's us exxon and royal dutch are not going to lose to a corn farmer in lebanon indiana because they're going to say all we got to sell is oil <laughs> let that corn go to let that corn go to corn chips let that corn go to cow feed we don't want that biofuel that ethanol." at all what do you think
1: you know i think that um well it's a complex one hey i think about these things yeah um I guess I would leave it at this. I think in the United States, this is a li- liquid fuel market. I mean, it just is. I mean, the distribution of the vast majority of, of, of any kind of uh, transportation, whether it's an automobile or transportation for logistics and trucking, it's all liquid fuels. My guess is that in my entire life, I've bought small cars. And in fact, I've got a Volkswagen diesel Jetta. That you know, I bought it. It was a bigger, a little bit bigger car than what I
0: normally buy. You thought it got 80 miles to the gallon because they fudge the numbers. It actually only gets 18, right?
1: No, yeah, it only it actually only gets around 48. So, <laughs> so, so I've always been kind of, of of that mindset. But here, back in December, I went out and bought a GMC Yukon, first big car I've ever owned in my entire life. And there was probably a reason for that because if you look at where the the market is today for new vehicles in the United States, it's not in the Chevy Cruze, it's in the the Tahoe, it's in the whatever massively gargantuan SUV or minivan you can find. So even though I understand that there might be reasons for people to want to go that way, I don't see that in the market. When I start seeing uh, electric cars, you know, like um, Nissan Leafs or some of the lower end stuff, Tesla's always going to have its market. It's a a high-end car. A lot of people want to own it. You know, that's great. But to me, when I start seeing people want to go back and start buying fuel cruises and such, then then I would be more, maybe um, somewhat more aligned with what your thoughts are. But I just don't see that evidence today. So I'm of
0: the opinion that we are going to have a struggle with uh, with with biofuels ten years from now, but also big trucks and all that are still going to need diesel. What yep. about plant? Plant-based packaging. You know the plastic thing. I believe is a real opportunity for both corn and soy because we have such an issue. Ed, uh, you can read in the in the any newspaper about the circles of plastic that are out in the ocean. You're drinking out of
1: a plastic cup right now. Plastic is really bad. Uh, is there an opportunity there for us? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you look at, you know, some of the news research that uh, both uh, Corn Marketing Council and Soybean Alliance have put forward at Purdue University and other institutions, um, plastics are a massive opportunity for the oil side of both the corn oil side and also the soybean oil side. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, And the characteristics of it are, uh, I think, much better than when you're looking at at petrochemical or uh, natural gas uh, derived polyethylene. So, yeah, I think there's, um, I agree with you. That's that's a massive opportunity for us. Okay.
0: Where else? What else happens? Take me 10 years down the road, corn and soybeans. All right. We know that the world has learned how to produce them. We know that we've got uh, always, you know, uh, Ukraine and Argentina and Brazil, et cetera. We also know that there's going to be plant-based meat. Uh, I think there's a marginal ground probably goes away on production of corn and soybeans, but I also think it might be growing hemp. It might be growing Kernza. It might be growing some of these other things. Is that going to bother you? You're an ag guy, but you're also a corn and soy guy.
1: Well, I think from the, the perspective, uh, you know, there's always an evolution going on in our industry. I mean, it's, it's gone from, um, you know, where we were. Um, some of the USDA records go back to the Civil War period, right? <laughs> and they come all the way forward. And obviously there's been massive changes in our, our marketplace and our ability to not only produce this product, but also, uh, you know, ship it all around the globe. I mean, that's been a massive, you know, trade in grain, um, you know, always was a big thing, but it tended to be between the big countries. Now global flows of grain are everywhere. So, um, it's much more portable than it used to be. And so I think, um, when, when I look at the opportunities, will there be acreage shifts? There always are. I mean, look at what's happened, for example, in our country with wheat, I mean, we used to be a major global wheat producer, and now every year, if you watch uh, wheat acres for the last 25, 30 years, that's just a downward slope. Uh, it's getting replaced by corn and soybean acres. There's other crops that have come in to fill that void. Uh, yeah, I get that. But do I think you know, it's going to be uh, markedly different than what I see today? Uh, The data that I I see from USDA and just with the people I talk with in the industry, I don't know if it's a massive change, but I think there will be changes because that's our our business is is growing and it's dynamic for sure. Growing and dynamic. Ed Ebert has been my guest.
0: He's the senior director of grain production utilization with the Indiana Corn Marketing Council, the Indiana Soybean Alliance, and those are part of the national checkoff programs. He's a good guest. You know, actually, I want to have him back. I've been changing equipment to, to improve my sound. And it looks like the equipment I put in today had a little bit of a problem and we had a little connection issue. But uh, anyway, thanks for joining me, Ed Ebert. Is there anything else? Closing thoughts, last thought here on I'm, a, I'm an ag guy. What do I need to know from
1: Ed Ebert? I'd watch the August 12th crop production report very closely. So because you're going to have a, a crop production report, the first one that kind of sets the bar for this year's production You're going to have a WASD out, and then you're going to have the results of that special survey of the 16 states uh, from the acreage report uh, back on June 28th. So I, I would watch what happens here in a couple, two or three weeks with that report. I think that's going to be a big one. I think you're right. Ed Ebert's
0: been my guest. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. And I'll remember, if you if you have time, Indiana Ag Policy Summit is Tuesday, July 30th from 9 to 3 in Indianapolis. You can go on their website at Indiana Corn or Indiana Soybean and find this. It's free admission. And I'm inviting you personally. I'm the closing speaker. It's from 9 to 3. I'll be going on around 2 o'clock. You'll hear about trade. You'll hear about issues, legislation, regulation. And uh, it's, it's going to be a really good time. Ed Ebert, thanks for being here. Thank you. Till next time, it's the business of agriculture.